As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, did you see the jolts number that just came out? We are recording this May 31st, 2023. I did. Job openings back up. You know, that's the thing. Like, they keep thinking, oh, the labor market's going to cool. It's going to cool. But here we are, over 10 million job openings again. Right. So job openings far exceeded, I think, any analyst estimate. 10 million openings for the last month. And I guess the question is... The market seems to be of two minds here, right? You have a lot of people who seem to be talking about the inevitability of recession, Mm -hmm. and yet you have the data that's still coming in stronger than a lot of people are expecting. And of course, you know, those two things are related because if data keeps coming in stronger than expected, then maybe inflation doesn't start to go down and the Fed has to hike even more and it pushes the economy into recession. But it does feel like not only is there a lot of doubt at the moment, but we're sort of heading in two possible polar opposite directions. Well, the thing that I keep coming back to is striking is if you told someone, you know, at the beginning of, you know, January 2022, you know, when rates were at zero, that by spring 2023, we'd be at five and a quarter on the Fed funds rate. Everyone's like, oh, you know, the market would have crashed. We'd be in recession, Mm. et cetera. And yet here we are with 10 million, more than 10 million job openings. And something that we've talked a lot about is like, you know, the entire 2010s was sluggish growth. And everyone's like, oh, this is the pickup. This is when inflation is going to come back. And it doesn't. And so far this decade, it feels like, okay, this is finally when roll, inflation is going to roll over. This is when the recession is going to happen, et cetera. And we, these expectations keep get kicked forward. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned interest rates just yeah. then. And I, I mean, the implication is kind of we've had years of people warning about what's going to happen when interest rates yes. rise. Is it going to lead to an explosion in interest rate costs and things like that? And, you know, we have seen some bankruptcies, but we're still sort of at this inflection point, it feels like. So I'm very pleased to say that we have the perfect guest for this episode. We are going to be speaking with the man, the myth, the legend, Jim Grant, the founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and a longtime commenter of financial markets. I've been a fan of his work for many years, so I'm so glad we can finally have him on the show. Jim, thank you for coming on. it is lovely to be here. And yes, interest rates are a thing again. (laughs) I began to doubt the efficacy of my business model. 
People are observing. People want interest yes. rates observed. It again. is a good time for observation. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's a good starting place. But how would you characterize the current period in markets versus, you know, the trajectory of history? You've mm. been through and written about many interest rate cycles at yeah. this point. Well, first place, I would call it good copy. Journalistic <laughs> this is what we like. It doesn't matter up or down. Just give us some good copy. <laughs> yeah, we don't want peace and quiet. Well, there are so many uh, singular features, and uh, dogmatism has been, I think, I hope, has been expunged from the conversation. And it's hard to dogmatize after 2020, 21, and 20, et cetera. What is new and different is, for example, interest rates have gone from nothing to five plus in the short end of the yield curve. And wouldn't you suppose that the home builders would have taken a big, but instead, the home builders are right behind NVIDIA as the, uh, the stocks and what you would think that they produced computer chips rather than two by fours. <laughs> but the home builders made new highs recently. And uh, you know why? Because rates have uh, kind of put interest rate handcuffs on people who are in possession of one of these sweet mortgages beginning with the numbers two or three or four. And I think most of the homeowners now with that have loans have something less than five. So people aren't moving and there's no supply. Oh, I exaggerate slightly, but there's little supply and the home builders are hot-footing it into that gap and they are coining money with huge margins and great perplexity all around. So you're speaking our language like on multiple levels. You mentioned semiconductors with NVIDIA, two by fours, we've talked lumber, we've talked home building. So what does that say then about our efforts to fight inflation? You know, we think of housing is like the ultimate rate sensitive yeah. sector. And yet here we have home builders close to all time highs, despite the surge. What does that say about, I don't know, perhaps the Fed's toolkit in fighting this kind of inflation? Well, the Fed uh, only about two weeks ago was propagating it. <laughs> the, 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 all the central banks of the world for years and years were bemoaning the fact they could not hit their 2% arbitrary, mind you, the arbitrary a 2% inflation target. And the Fed, as recently as the Jackson Hole speech of what, 2020, that remote Jackson Hole conference, Chairman Powell said, you know, we are going to search for a flexible inflation target. And if it's too low, we will, we will overshoot and thereby bring the average over the cycles up to more than 2%. Now that was, it seems to me, that was kicking sand in the face of the fates. Hmm, right. And so there's, there's a bureaucratic dogmatism in the Fed, they've got these algebraic models, my goodness, how formidable they look on Blackboard, but they don't actually function very well so far as the future is concerned. And the Fed was, in fact, dogmatic through 2021 into 2022, buying mortgages recently, I think, as March 2022. So you ask mm. about their inflation-fighting tools? Uh-uh. They, they're rusty, should mm. we say. Well, just on that note, I mean, walk us through why haven't the interest rate increases fed into the real economy more? Like, why are you not seeing house prices go down? Why are you not seeing the much anticipated wave of bankruptcies that people were warning mm. about for, you know, many, many years after the 2008 financial crisis? Well, I think house prices have, in fact, uh, gone down. Uh, is this phrase uh, existing house prices? That is the ones that are not imaginary. So existing house mm. prices mm. are down. New house prices are down from their peaks, you know, 8 10%, if memory serves. 
But uh, the point is well taken, Tracy, that you know, the phrase, I think, something will break. Right. And uh, I was of the view, am of the view, that try as Jay Powell might to emulate Paul Volcker, Mr. Powell is not working with Paul Volcker's economy. It's much more dead, hmm. uh, therefore much more fragility. You know, people are head over heels over private credit. They contend that uh, this is a not quite NVIDIA quality breakthrough in history of uh, finance, but it's up there. And But, you know, the, the private credit is a manifestation of the uh, imperative to build leverage, whether it's on the federal level or the corporate level, not quite so much recent years on the individual level. So there's a lot of leverage. And I would say, Tracy, uh, that uh, with respect to the paradox of nothing breaking much yet, just be patient. Mm-hmm. I expected it might. It's coming. Yeah. Where do you see vulnerabilities? Mm. You mentioned fragilities. Where are they? Uh, private equity mm-hmm. is one. I think private credit will be shown to be rather oversold as a breakthrough. I don't think it's any such thing. How but, do Actually, how do people think about Why do people think that there's something special about private credit? Well, I think the story goes that the, the vendors of private, the lenders of private credit are more flexible. They have uh, commitments by their limited partners to supply funds. They are not constrained by banking regulations. They are you know, kind of a new breed, so the story goes. But, you know, they, they are lending to a, an important extent to software companies, which famously lack gap profitability. Mm-hmm. They are lending to the very same people that the public credit markets are lending to, but they're doing it at a somewhat cheaper rate. They're not doing it on a rated basis, so Moody's is not getting the ratings business it did. I don't know. I, 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 the whole private credit business sounds to me as if it were the same wine in, uh, in slightly more presentable bottles. Just on this topic, there's a line that you wrote many years ago now, and it kind of lives for free in my head. And it it's slightly random, but it's basically um, invaliant of financialized age has produced a financialized pharma company. And I used to think about that quite a lot in the context of Valiant, of course. You know, they borrowed a lot from markets cheaply. They bought a lot of companies. They used interesting accounting techniques such as addbacks to boost their valuation so that they could keep borrowing. And I wonder how much that type of financialization, in your opinion, is reflected across the market and across the economy, not just a Valiant-specific yeah. type thing. Well, I would say that, that it is rather endemic I guess we ought to define it. What we, uh, what I mean by it, Tra- Tracy, is the uh, finance for the sake of finance, mm-hmm. uh, not for the sake of making a better product, but finance for the sake of making money through structure, through fees, and the like. That's financialization, and you see it again in private equity. There's a there's this thing called um, addbacks. Addbacks mm-hmm. are a form of sly. Uh, manipulation of cost structure. So you do a deal, you buy a company, and uh, you say, we will lever it, meaning we will encumber it with debt to the extent of six and a half times EBITDA, this uh, kind of non-GAAP measure of earnings. And and the reason it's 6.5 and not 9.5 is because we project savings through the uh, great managerial improvements that private equity invariably introduces to its- Synergies, <laughs> to synergies its, everywhere. Yeah, to its portfolio companies. 
And don't you know that S&P does an annual add-back study? That's, hmm. that's the age in which we live. There is an add-back study. from You can look, <laughs> wait for it every year. And it shows that the, most of these promised uh, savings, Tracy, don't, don't be shocked, uh, don't materialize. Mm. But the fees surrounding them are paid. So that, that's an example, one micro example of financialization. And I think it's all over the place. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since you mentioned NVIDIA twice already, I feel like the NVIDIA chart would make very a lot of sense to me in the year 2021 or maybe 28, 2019, you know, during the sort of like ZERP heyday when we associated low interest rates with booming tech stocks. But here we have the chart. It's not ZERP anymore. We're at five and a quarter percent. And yet that hasn't extinguished this sort of like animal spirits of the market to pile into some like really hot area because, you know, AI is really exciting. What does that say about, you know, some of our assumptions about the relationships between investment and animal spirits and speculation and rates when we see this sort of activity at a time of five and a quarter interest rates? You know, the wonderful thing about financial markets is that we keep on stepping on the same rake. Mm. You know, there's there's uh, in science, you know, progress is cumulative. We stand on the shoulders of giants, but financial history is invariably cyclical and recurrent, which helps a lot if you can recognize patterns. Scott McNeely, who is the CEO of Sun Microsystems, gave the terrific oh, yeah. little speech, I guess on Twitter maybe. It was an exasperated and rueful expression. It was kind of a post-mortem of the, of the dot-com bubble, which now is so deep in the historical myths. But um, Sun was trading then at 10 times earnings. Hmm. And Mr. McNeely said, what do you have to do? No, 10 times revenue, right? Re oh, sorry, revenue, of course. Sorry, I didn't Thank mean you, I just want, but no, I think it's important that's to understand. That, that's yeah. the laugh line. Yeah. Darn. Anyway, okay, sorry, sorry. So, so what, you would, what he would have to do, uh, what you have to do to break even with uh, 10 times revenue? Well, if, over the course of 10 years, I would have to send you every single dollar. So no more R&D, no more salaries for the employees, no taxes, oops, no taxes, et cetera. So, so he went through this exercise and he said, and at the end he said, why did you pay 10 times revenues? Okay. <laughs> NVIDIA is like 35 times revenue. So that's 35 years of uh, that. Have no cost. <laughs> no employees. I, I read, no CapEx, no R&D, no taxes. I read somewhere that NVIDIA has introduced AI, which is tantamount. In fact, 
equal to, yeah, equal to, Tanama, the invention of fire. It's the new fire. <laughs> Tam on that's got to be huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the warning sign, right, Tam, when people start talking about total addressable market yeah. size. Um, I have a slightly personal question, but I've always wondered this. Do you consider yourself more of a journalist or more of a financial analyst? Uh, journalist. Journalist? Yeah. And how does that influence I your I hired uh, Evan Lorenz. He's a great financial Yeah, he's analyst. great. Yeah. He's very good. But he, how does he, that inform your, your own work? Evan. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I started uh, not quite a one-man band. It was never exactly a one-man band. This is our 40th year. But for many a year, there was no Evan. There was often someone to lend a hand. Yeah, there, was, there were a lot of, lot of help. But I, I, I have uh, gravitated to... Uh, to uh, journalism, I think, more than the uh, really deep diving financial analysis. I'm interested in history as well, have read a lot, written some. And, uh, you wrote a book on um, Badgett, right? Yes, Recently. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Walter Badgett is, is the uh, kind of the muse of contemporary central banking. They invoke his dictum about, in a crisis, they will say, the contemporary central bankers will say, lend freely uh, to everybody which is a very much a paraphrase of Badgett's lend at a high rate <laughs> against, <laughs> against suitable collateral, banking collateral right? yeah. to solvent institutions, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say, I thought you must be have been exaggerating when you said the 35 times revenue, but you were like, I was like, that cannot be right. It can't be 30x revenue, but no. Fiscal year 2024, the estimate for NVIDIA revenue is $40 billion. It's a trillion-dollar company. And so, yeah, we're basically at— It looks like a typo. I, yeah. <laughs> we published, published it last night, and I say, no, let's please. This can't even, be. like, look at fiscal year 2027, the, currently on the Bloomberg. I find this it's only at $77 billion. So even, like, you go out to 27, yeah. you're still, like, at 15x 2027 or 14x 2027 we, revenue. Bloomberg, which can get anyone on the phone, ought to call up Scott McNeely and say, oh, what now? Let's do that. Let's do that. That's a, that's a really good idea. Scott's really – those earnings calls back in the day were really fun. Yeah. Can I ask a question? You know, you mentioned dogma. You mentioned the Fed's rusty inflation-fighting tools, which – Un, you know, maybe understandably, because for the previous decade or really even longer, maybe the the impulse was reflation and why are we missing on the downside, et cetera. What did that period teach you as a historian of financial markets, a student and someone who's yeah. like, what did the period of like 2009 through 2020 in which we had large deficits, we had this exploding size of the Fed's balance sheet, and yet this sort of inability to generate inflation? Like, what was your sort of like, Looking back on that decade, what is it? The well, it was, it was very humbling for me. I, what I took away from it is that the inevitable is always certain, but not always punctual. Mm. I look back at some of my work there, and I was rather impatient for the inevitable difficulties and crises attending upon, upon uh, you know, this, this credit creation jag. I thought certainly it was going to happen like um, Tuesday or so. But, <laughs> but uh, so it's like the elapsed time between um, uh, the first signs of house prices going way above trend on the one hand and the onset of the housing-related credit difficulties of 2007, 8, and 9. That period of six years was approximately 20 years in journalistic time, <laughs> if you were a little bit too insistent upon. Yeah. yeah. Well, just on this point, let me ask a sort of devil's advocate question, because I had— you know, a, a similar 
trajectory sort of I wouldn't compare myself to you obviously but you know post 2008 I wrote a lot about excesses in the corporate bond market and it seemed very clear to me that eventually this would blow up it didn't really and you know we could argue that maybe the time is coming for some of those excesses to to get flushed out of the market but it does feel like the solution to a lot of financialization is more financialization, or at least it has been so far. So for instance, with corporate bonds, when there was stress in the market, the central bank comes in, props up the corporate bond market through the bond buying program. Why can't that continue hmm. forever? And like, what is the tipping point at which financial solutions to financial problems is no longer viable? A tipping point was six years ago. Hmm. <laughs> no, that's very specific. My, my impatient clock, it was a long time ago, but it did not tip. So why can't it go on forever? I know there are always, uh, the, the, these excesses do crop up. They are met with uh, additional stimulus, intervention, uh, manipulation, and still we go on. Who was it who said there is a deal of ruin in a country? I guess it was Adam Smith. And uh, there's a great deal of ruin, so to speak, in in finance and manipulated finance. And one of the singularities of the present time is the, uh, is the American position in international finance. Mm. You know, this is countries emits the uh, reserve currency, which means that we consume much more than we produce. Uh, we finance the difference with dollar bills that only we can lawfully print at a most reasonable price of like nothing. And we remit the dollars to our creditors, mainly in Asia, say, and uh, those dollars don't leave the country because they come back in the shape of treasuries and mortgages purchased for the portfolio interests of our creditors. So that is kind of a new thing in the long historical sweep. It's not so it's not so new in terms of, of years, but in terms of phenomena, it's it's a the reserve currency country being a chronic big debtor. That's kind of a different thing. Reserve currency country uh, living on the kindness of strangers, so to speak. That's it's not exactly writ. So um, the more one learns, the less dogmatic one becomes about timing, certainly. Well, that, case. well that actually leads to the exact next question, which is, you know, obviously currently today in 2023, there's yet another round of, oh, is the dollar going to lose some its yeah. global status? But we've been hearing that forever, right? Like we, you know, we heard that certainly after the great financial crisis, I think, you know, pre-great financial crisis, there was a lot of talk about the euro and we've talked about it on the show and like, you know, who is the model that flashed euros on the, like, you know, this is not a new thing. So when you think about like, okay, like timing is really tough with this stuff. Like, does it feel new? Does this moment feel different than past times when people had dollar status anxiety? Well, some of the rhetoric's the same, you know, that I guess by definition, the excesses are greater. The U.S. international financial position, which is a piece of data that comes out every year about this time ever shows a, a, a deepening deficit between what we own of other in countries' securities and businesses versus what they own of our securities and businesses and other security and, other, and public security. So the, the deficits deepen, but still what's, you know, so what's the competition? Turkey is mad at us and wants a different currency. Iran, ditto. China and the Russia, the same. But I don't see those as strong competitors for an alternative currency. I see gold as a perennial option. Unfortunately, too few people share my enthusiasm <laughs> for that. I, I wish uh, perhaps Bloomberg. It's could everyone help, else who's wrong. Perhaps Bloomberg could help along those lines as well. <laughs> um, 
Well, just on this note, I mean, we were talking about NVIDIA. When you see markets react like that, like what do you think is happening there? What is the thought process of an investor who says, I'm going to buy NVIDIA yeah. when it's up 40% yeah. in three weeks? Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, again, under the heading of you never know, which I have come to embrace as a sound journalistic and life principle, uh, there is a possibility that this time it is the invention of fire part two. So one holds a mind share for that. I think more likely is that this is part of the muscle memory of a generation of 0% interest rates and and the all-you-can-eat credit. Hmm. Uh, the great all-you-can-eat credit buffet table was open for business for 10 years. Interest rates fell from 1981 until a couple of, actually a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it's called 40 years. So that's a lot of muscle memory. Yeah. Central banks have intervened predictably until fairly recently when markets shuttered. Look what happened in 2019. You know, the repo market, this obscure recondite thing, caught a head cold in September, and uh, the Fed resumes QE. Didn't call it QE. It's not QE. Yeah, it was QE. So, that, so, so naturally, people assume that the upside is the side to be on. Mm. It takes a true contrarian, uh, most uh, bloody-minded contrarianness to um, to butt one's head against that, but it's a living. <laughs> so, so why do people do it? Because A, because cyclical memories are short and cycles are recurrent, and B, because it has worked. Mm. Quote, that phrase ought to be in quotes. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's funny, you're t you know, you talk about like the memory of ZERP or the memory of 40 years of declining interest rates. Right before you walked in, Tracy and I were talking about like, you know, re the real estate market. And I've sort of been looking at maybe buying a place. And the one thing you always hear from people is like, Oh well, like rates are high now, but you maybe you'll be able to refinance lower in a few years. And when every time I hear that, I'm like, I mean, that would be nice, but like, there's no guarantee of mean reversion. And you know, what were they like, eighteen percent in the 1980s? Like, right. could we go back there? Could yes. You, could could I see teens Fed rates in my life? Yes, you could. Uh, there's a there's a property about interest rates that I find intriguing. My interest is not widely shared, but here is my reading of the question, the great question, whether rates are mean reverting. So what was, what characterizes interest rate movements is their generation length 
uh, phasing, not necessarily cycles, but there are phases. The interest rates fell for the last quarter of the 19th century, rose for the first 20 years of the 20th, uh, fell from 1920 to 46, rose from 46 to 81, fell from 81 to call it 19, 2021. So at each juncture, there was some mark of excess, some mark of speculative excess blow off. Like certainly in 1981, you know, a 20% plus funds rate seemed excessive. A 14% yield in 1984 in long bond when the CPI was printing at four or five, that seemed excessive. 10 percentage points of real yield, that seemed a lot. So I would, I speculate that we are embarked on a long cycle of rising rates and I say that, first of all, for reasons of pattern recognition, there's no theory behind it, but I, I observed that in 2020 and 21, some unimaginably large number of debt securities were priced to yield less than nothing. Bloomberg keeps this particular figure. And I, I bet still, perhaps you could check me on this, I bet still there's like $100 billion of bonds priced to yield less than nothing worldwide. But there were $18 trillion, I think, at the peak. Most extraordinary expression of unqualified bullishness on an asset class because it had the name of bonds, which had been <laughs> falling in yield rising in price. So it, no, it would not surprise me at all if we were embarked on, on something resembling a generation length bear market in bonds, meaning rising yields and falling prices that would, that would fit the form. Could you get, you mentioned the idea of a, a embarking on a long cycle of higher rates. Could that happen even with a recession in the States? Because hmm. this seems to be the bet that everyone's making, right? That inflation isn't coming down, and so the Fed's uh -huh. going to have to hike, and inevitably that will lead to recession. Well, and start, then yeah. cuts. Yeah. Starting in 1958, something strange happened, and people at the time remarked on it, which is that uh, in a recession, prices did not fall or subside. And that marked the... What, proved to be the beginning of the age of inflation. Mm. So fast forward to the 70s. 70s is kind of a trite historical marker. You know, it's, it's never going to repeat exactly, but for what it's worth, in the 70s, interest rates did fall and rise as the business cycle changed. But inflation came and rose and, and subsided in three different phases. It, mm. it, uh, it wasn't a straight line. So yeah, so we, could have a, we could have a recession and, uh, and rates pull back. And then they resume the rise. So, so the cycle. So the long-term path would be upwards yeah, in terms be, of interest rates, but yes. not linearly. And, yeah, just for example, from 1946 to 56, the movement up in the long-dated treasury was 100 basis points, one percent. That was it. Went from three and a half, basically from uh, sorry, two and a half to three and a half over ten years. So this is this is this is rather glacial. This is kind of uh, geologic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's why one can forecast uh, these long cycles with, especially if one is seventy six and a half years <laughs> old, without any anxiety about being no, laughed for, at. <laughs> but to your point, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, look, as you mentioned, that forty year cycle basically through I don't know two thousand whatever. It's not like it was only down. I mean, we had up cycles in the 80s and the 90s. Oh, and yes. Pre-GFC. Yeah, yeah. It's just that the long-term trend was lower highs each yes, time. Yeah. And so potentially the idea here is, okay, maybe we do get a cutting cycle in a year, but it's lower lows Absolutely, each time. Yeah. So, what, what, so the rates peaked in 1981. In 1984, there was what the technicians call a retest of those um, highs and yields. And uh, everyone on Wall Street who was anyone was on the side of saying that rates will go back up again. And the long bond did go to 14% in 1984 when inflation was less than, I think, 5%. Less than 5%. 
So there's, um, I think I think one of the least appreciated uh, forces in markets or factors, as they would say, is simple condition behavior or muscle memory. Mm. So just on that note, I was thinking back, I, I used to have a grandparent who lived through the Great Depression and had food hoarding problems because of this, because she hadn't had a lot of food when she was growing up. And so in her later years, when she had access to food, she would buy a lot of it and store it. Are markets, I'm assuming markets are ill-equipped to deal with this kind of generational shift. You have people, um, mm. Joe and I certainly, you know, for 40 years have been striving for any sort of return, any sort of yield. <laughs> uh, we've only recently started earning like significant bank interest on our savings accounts. This is it pleasant? It's so nice. It's lovely being <laughs> a renter. Make it, money for nothing. Make a lot of, you could probably make some money if we like a uh, plug which uh, which online bank you but don't do it we got <laughs> no, to get no i'm not going to until they pay us we're not going to say where we right pay. hold out for that yeah yeah exactly yeah. right and i'm aware that you know the real return is still negative but <laughs> it's still nice but how would you expect markets to adapt to this mm. shift well, if it's slow enough, they could adapt easily. The great shift to higher races I mentioned it took 10 years to get started. I remember um, my first job on Wall Street. I was a, I just got out of the Navy and I was, a, before I went to college, I was a clerk on a Wall Street trading desk and I came home. And the New York Telephone, long dated sixes, the sexy mm. sixes, of, uh, <laughs> they call it. And um, I told my father, this, uh, what everyone says, Dad, is that these 6% yields, are. This is, this is something special and you have to avail yourself. So I'm not sure where the New York telephones were in the year 1981, but they were not at 6%. <laughs> so uh, you have to uh, pace yourself, but there, there's often plenty of time to adapt. But, you know, there's opportunities in the non-adaptation. In a great bond bear market, all sorts of strange things happen. For example, call protection goes for free because hmm. no one expects rates to go back up again. So, ah. you, so you can buy call protection without any premium to the price. Hmm. Uh, when you look at these long shifts, these multi-decade moves, how much is it about maybe politics or just shifting ideas? And so, you know, I'm thinking like part of the reason I think many people would say we had such a powerful and aggressive fiscal response to the COVID shock was the memory of the weak recovery coming out of 2008, 2009, and this sort of like years of slow growth. So it's like, okay, we're not going to like make this mistake again. We'll make another gonna, one. We'll make, we'll go, <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going to overshoot in a different yeah. direction. And so how much of like these, like when you look at sort of like long shifts and obviously like that Volcker era and some of those ideas, some of the supply side ideas from the yeah. early eighties, like those are ancient, those are old memories. Like people forgot it. And now people have different ideas. And now people talk about like state capitalism and public investment. How much do these like long cycles sort of correspond with like essentially ideas uh, that are in vogue? You have to wonder whether the uh, uh, the direction of causation, Richard Russell, who's a, a marvelous technician and thinker about markets who was no longer with us, was the author of the, uh, of the epigram, Markets Make Opinions. Mm, mm. And uh, and there's some, I think there's something to the idea that that phases of economic life, whether they be markets or in nine to five world of actually producing things, as it were, that the uh, background music of enterprise kind of conjures ideas. I'm not sure if ideas cause things. Maybe they might. But these I ideas are recurrent. I mean, uh, I'm told that, that generation, what comes after Z? A? <laughs> I don't know. What's, it's what, my, whatever my, my daughter, I don't know. i got to find out what that is. They're socialists, apparently. So, uh, so <laughs> like, we, yeah, that's we will actually the case. reinvent that one again. I don't know. I've given you a very poor answer to an excellent <laughs> question, Joe. That's <laughs> all right. Well, just on the notion of these long-term cycles maybe 
starting to shift. It, it does feel like, you know, previous decades were about sort of lower interest rates. And during those previous decades, we basically built the financial system around the assumption that government bonds are the safest thing out there. Super government, safe. Yeah. Super safe. Yeah. Government <laughs> bonds, you know, the yields don't move around that much. And yet, in the previous year, we have seen <laughs> big question marks around the safety of government bonds and the stability of yields, which have resulted in a few things breaking yeah. to your earlier point. You know, we saw troubles at the bank, the Fed reporting an accounting loss on its own balance sheet. What does it mean for the financial system as we move into potentially a higher rate environment or a higher vol environment for rates? I, I, know, I, I think one of the ideas that has sustained markets over the past, call it generation, is the idea of, of uh, Federal Reserve competence. The notion mm. that um, people at the Fed know what they're doing and can make things happen. They are, they are weather makers in finance and uh, they're responsible for the great moderation. They're responsible earlier for Paul, you know, Paul Volcker responsible. So it started with Paul Volcker and his mastery of the inflation problem. and then go to, So I think that the Fed will be revealed as a bunch of well-intended people who are involved in a kind of pseudoscience and people will wake up one day and say, uh, you know, I've noticed that my weather app is accurate for a day or two, but out 10 days, I wouldn't trust, I wouldn't bet my dog's life on it. And yet we listen patiently, even reverentially to the economists at the Fed to talk about what's going to happen next month or next year. They know nothing. I mean, the future is a closed book. The screenwriter named uh, Goldman, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and other such great things, he said, apropos of Hollywood's forecasting ability. Nobody knows anything, said William Goldman. Correct, correct, as the fashion of the future. But the difference is that the Fed thinks it knows something. Mm. It thought it knew something in 2020 when it was going to try a little harder to produce more inflation. It uh, thought it knew something in 2021 by insisting that the problem in front of its eyes was transitory, etc., I don't mean to ask too much of them, but I would ask of them the confession that they really don't know. So we will, I think, have that fact, that simple, humble fact presented to us in a way we can't deny. You know, not so long ago, I mean, I remember it vividly, 1980, 81, when you should have been interested in owning these, uh, they had something called uh, uh, lions and tigers. These are the trade names for a zero coupon treasury securities price to yield 12, 13, 14, 15% internal compounding, uh, no reinvestment risk for 30 years. Seemed like a good investment. However, such was the burden of accumulated loss and the loathing that people felt towards this unrepaying, brutally punitive asset class. It was certificates of confiscation was the phrase <laughs> that bonds acquired. That was, that was the uh, people <laughs> hurling anathemas at the bond market and at the Fed. And now, did I tell you, mention the Fed's broke? No, it, <laughs> it is a hypothetical theoretical insolvency, but to me, it is a symbolic, it is a symbolic fact of not a little importance. Mm. You know, the, mm. the only thing that looks more like the Silicon Valley <clears throat> balance sheet than Silicon Valley is the Fed's balance sheet. They earn at two and they pay at five these days. And uh, every week they lose a little bit more of their capital in the form of a promise to the treasury to one day make it up. Right. 
people gloss over this. They say, oh, well, it's a Fed can print money, but it can't print net worth, right? So uh, the Fed's not going to go out of business because it is insolvent, unlike some of its charges, the banks. But the fact that it, shouldn't the Fed be, uh, maybe shouldn't it be held to the same accounting and regulatory standards as the, the private banks? Wouldn't that have forestalled the excesses of ZERP and it can, QE? Uh, it can set its own stress test, right? Perhaps Jamie Dimon could uh, write a stress <laughs> test for the Fed. <laughs> yeah, the, the the ultimate rescue. I heard I heard myself going off on rather a sermon. I, I will stop. No, 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 not at all. I want to actually. It's interesting. You mentioned how, like, if you had bought in, like, you know, at some point in the late seventies or early eighties, some of these long dated zero coupon bonds, they would have done fantastically well yeah. over yeah. some length of time, like some of the greatest investments Decades. ever. Yeah. But you had to deal with those first few years and maybe you took some serious sustained losses. And I was thinking about your point about like contrarianism. This is, I mean, this bedevils everyone in the financial industry, the challenge of like, well, how do you maintain some sort of out of consensus position yeah. in a mm. period, especially if you're at, well, there's two, there's multiple things, but A, there's the psychological battle of like, well, am I wrong? Is the market wrong? C, like B, like you want to make money and C, you might hit, if you're managing someone else's money, you might not have a very long leash to lose money. What is sort of like you're thinking about like that process of like, okay, like this might be, you don't know the exact timing of when it's going to work yeah. and like reconciling these challenges. Well, I have some experience in this. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is a, is, a, is a, you know, journalists don't get margin calls. Friends of mine who do this for a living, that is to say this, meaning identify something that is not in favor or in phase, mm -hmm. research it, gain conviction, and hold it in spite of the scorn and the vitriol of those positioned otherwise. That's the kind of the, the game. Journalistically, all you have to do is uh, have a hard shell. If you're doing it in real time with real money, you either have to have a, a very, very loyal base of uh, <laughs> limited partners or investors or um, and be managing your own money. It's, it's, it's hard. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it's wearing. It is not life enhancing. <laughs> but when it's right, it's really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get to do the victory laps. Well, Jim, on that happy note, we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for coming on All Thoughts. Really well, appreciate it. You are it. entirely welcome, Tracy. Joe, thank you. That was incredible. That was such a treat. Yeah, I really so appreciate you coming back uh, on. A delight. Thank you. We'll have you back on in uh, 20 years where we'll see what the, uh, <laughs> see what the uh, interest rate cycle is. We'll see what. <laughs> Fed funds in the team. Gee, I hope I'll be here. Likewise. <laughs>
people kind of run towards them now? Absolutely. I also just think that like, I mean, I definitely feel this these days where it's like the meme stock era, the Zerp era, the Fang era was mm-hmm. so recently that it's like, oh, yeah, that's normal. That little dip that we had in 2022 and people shunned tech, that was the aberration. But, yeah, you see NVIDIA and AI, you got to go back to that. And then I think this gets back to like the rates thing, which is that like 5% or like a 6% mortgage feels really high to people mm-hmm. after 15 years of whatever, but it's not, right? Like it's not high at all, like 6%. And they were much higher throughout much, the entirety of the 90s and they were much, much higher throughout entirely the 80s. But, you know, for a lot, an entire generation, their entire lives of like potentially home buying lives is like basically yeah. the Zerp era. I do wonder if the novelty of earning interest on uh, bank savings is ever going to wear off for me. You know, it's been almost 40 years of not earning anything, <laughs> I, and now it's just amazing to get you I'm, know, a I, few percentage points. I'm so, like, poisoned by the last decade. I can't be bothered <laughs> to, like, click the buttons to move over for a couple uh, of Joe, you got to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, you can have my money, Money for nothing and <laughs> negative real returns. Like, it's uh, great. Yeah. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of the Bloomberg podcasts under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we have transcripts, a blog, and a newsletter. And... Check out the Discord, discord.gg slash oddlots. Listeners are in there 24-7 talking about all these episodes and things we talk about. I hang out there a lot. Tracy's in there a lot. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway and we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast and we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about Money Stuff the podcast. That's right friend of the pod Matt Levine is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host Katie Greifeld to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.